Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Panarella, here for another episode of Fun-Filled Facts and Experience. And today, I'm going to do a potpourri. A lot of the ideas for these potpourri episodes come to me on and off and on and off. And, you know, when you're when I'm scaling up to, to record another podcast, I sort of think about what is exciting to me and what's interesting me in the moment. And uh, I usually have already done my homework and I've got my script and I've got my notes and I know what I'm going to talk about. And then I make a snap decision and I'm going to do a potpourri. And that's what we got today, people. We have a potpourri episode. I can be used as a very easy example for several several issues. Now, the first one is I'm not a spring chicken, so I'm getting older. And if you don't know this yourself, if you're a younger person, you'll find out later. If you're an older person, you know what I'm talking about is that as you age, pains tend to linger. And primarily what I'm talking about are musculoskeletal pains that you have. And myself as an example, I have some fairly acute pain in my left shoulder. And yesterday, I got to really actually thinking about it instead of just going, oh, I have pain in my shoulder. So what I realized was that I have tendonitis in my left deltoid, middle deltoid muscle. And why is that important, do you ask? Okay, it is important because I I got to thinking when I can actually focus on a problem, especially my own. I start using my medical education, my medical knowledge, and I looked up what's called the origin and the insertion of the middle deltoid muscle. And origin and insertion are important terms, especially for those of you in that are veterinarians or want to go to veterinary school or are in veterinary school right now, is that muscles originate from somewhere and attach to somewhere. So originate means they are attached to something, usually a bone of some sort. And then they insert where they terminate. Again, they're usually attached to a bone. And where many muscles attach, there is a tendon. The middle deltoid muscle originates from the clavicle and the shoulder blade. And it attaches on the upper portion of the humerus, which is your upper arm. And it helps to lift raise your arm, especially laterally, if you're talking about the middle deltoid muscle. And what I have right now is pain where the middle deltoid attaches to my upper humerus. And those two terms, origin and insertion, are important because we do experience tendonitis in animals and especially uh, dogs, cats. Yeah, sure, it's possible, but they're going to be a lot harder, I think, to isolate especially on palpation, you might be able to to elicit a pain response in an animal, but you might not be able to isolate it. Dogs tend to be larger than cats, usually a little bit thicker, muscled and more heavily boned, although that's not true in every case. But being able to isolate and palpate a particular muscle and its origin and assertion are going to be important. So I'm an excellent example of that. And how am I managing my pain? Well, I'm using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, an NSAID that I've already talked about to you. It is an, an analgesic that it is a drug that blocks inflammation 
it is an analgesic, so it's block, it blocks pain and it reduces swelling. And the pain of my tendonitis is due to overstress, overstrain, tearing, partial, not complete tearing, but partial tearing of or stretching of that uh, ligament from the middle deltoid muscle to my upper humerus. And I said where those muscles terminate, they, they turn into, um, into tendons. So I have tendonitis in that portion of the muscle. And that's the attachment at the humerus. So if I press on that, I can feel where the pain is coming from. So the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory will help reduce the inflammation. Now, tendons are orally vascularized, such and the same is true of a ligament. We do not have great blood supply there. So there's many things that we could do for an animal that has tendonitis. And one of those things would be a non anti-inflammatory. There would be regular exercise. Physical therapy may be warranted in certain cases. And there are some, some um, practitioners of physical therapy for animals. There are water tanks available. There are infrared um, instruments to promote healing. There are sound waves uh, in instruments that are used to promote healing. So we do have numbers of ways to recover. Most dogs that I know do not need extensive therapy unless they've had a, a catastrophic injury. And a catastrophic injury could be a fracture, could be a severe neurological problem that has caused uh, cause disuse of a muscle or damage the nerves. So your average garden variety animal comes in and the veterinarian isolates a problem to a muscle. If they think it's tendonitis, they're going to dispense some sort of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory for a period of time and monitor for the results. And also that means that exercise should be limited. It doesn't mean exercise needs to be eliminated, but you do need to limit exercise because you do not want to injure that area further. I wanted to be complete and talk about a, a muscle in a dog and the origin and insertion and what its function is. And I picked here what's called the vastus lateralis. It's one of the quadriceps muscles. It's one of the muscles on the dorsal or the top of the thigh. Human beings have the muscle as well. The muscle attaches to the top of the femur. Its origin is the top of the femur. And it inserts down on the, the top or the cranial portion of the tibia, cranial meaning towards the towards the top of the bone. And the function of that muscle, along with the other quadriceps muscles, is to extend the lower limb. And you can think about that as if you were sitting in a chair and you extended your foot parallel to the floor, that's the a function of, or the function of, the vastus lateralis muscle and all the other quadriceps muscles working to extend the limb. So you can see the origin is high up in the femur. The insertion is high up on the tibia. The tibia is the second bone. The femur is the, is the thigh bone. Dogs have it as well. And the tibia is the lower bone uh, below the knee or what we would call the stifle in veterinary medicine. 
and the vastus lateralis is that is that muscle that helps extend the limb. So same in dogs, same in people. Okay, that was the first thing I wanted to talk about. The second thing I wanted to talk about is the difference between a strain and a sprain. Strains are limited to ligaments and tendons. Strains are, as I said about my the tendonitis I have in my middle deltoid muscle, strains affect tendons and ligaments. And that means there's some sort of stretching, there's some sort of tearing. A complete tear through would cause the muscle to retract up. A partial tearing means that there's there is an actual physical separation of fibers in the tendon. And there are just cases where the tendons are stretched. They're not broken, but they're stretched. And the inflammation, result of the inflammation is, is for the body to heal that area. And as you age, it takes much longer, six months sometimes for these wounds, these issues to heal. In dogs, they tend to heal a little bit quicker. I've seen a week, couple of weeks for those sorts of issues to, to resolve. A sprain, on the other hand, is affects a joint. And a joint has many, many more components to it than uh, a tendon. Joints are usually surrounded by ligaments, which are basically thick elastic bands that hold the joint together. There's the joint capsule. There's the synovium, the synovial lining, which is the place where joint fluid, synovial fluid is created. You usually have some cartilage. If we think about the stifle for a minute, we have the meniscus and the cartilage on both ends of the bones. So what you have is the bone in the joint, you have cartilage, then you have the synovial fluid, then you have on the opposite bone, you have cartilage and then bone, and then the joint capsules holding it all together, surrounding everything so that that joint fluid stays in one place. You have the ligaments helping to stabilize the joint, and you might have other ligaments such as the cranial cruciate and the caudal cruciate ligaments inside the stifle, also known as the knee. So when you sprain a joint or an animal sprains a joint, you're going to have multiple issues within that joint. You can have damage to the synovial lining. You can have tears in the cartilage. You can have bruising to the cartilage. You can have strain to the ligaments of the joint. So you can see that there's many different, you can have fractures, you can have avulsions, you can have um, an avulsion of a ligament inside the joint where the ligament becomes disattached and it's not doing its job and it's not stabilizing the joint. So sprains are usually much more complicated. Most of us have experienced a sprain of a joint. You you take a wrong step, you twist your ankle, you've sprained your, your ankle joint. And it those do tend to take quite a while to heal, depending, again, on the severity of the, sh of the sprain. So the difference is strain is for ligaments and tendons. Sprain is related to a joint. That was the second topic. Third topic, way back when, when I had talked about electrolytes, I had wanted to, to talk about water intoxication because occasionally you'll read about it in the news. And back when I was doing that episode, which you can look it up in the archives, uh, there was a story in the paper that Brooke Shields, I think most people know who Brooke Shields is. She's a little, she's about my age now. She's a model. She had been in some movies. 
and she had water intoxication. She consumed, she drank too much water. And what happens is when you drink too much water, more than what you need to stay hydrated, you become hyponatremic. Now, natremic, natremia means sodium in your blood. Hypo means less than, so you have less sodium in your blood. And if you recall back from that episode, sodium, potassium, chloride are important for cellular proper cellular functioning. So what happens is when you have too much water, you're causing your your kidneys to wash out. That's called medullary washout of sodium. And now your body is deficient in sodium. And that also can cause, so that causes muscle weakness. You might faint. You can have swelling in the brain. Uh, you can have all sorts of things. People actually do die from water intoxication from the neurologic, the central nervous system component of swelling in the brain. Plus, if it's severe enough, your your cells, your entire body is made up of cells and all your muscles are made up of cells and your heart is a muscle made up of cells. And you can cause severe cardiac impairment being hyponatremic. Hyponatremia doesn't, um, water intoxication is not really a large problem in animals. Primarily what we see in animals is water deprivation leading to hypernatremia, which is a little bit the reverse. And then what happens is if you allow an animal too rapid access to water thereafter, then the animal is going to consume too much water too quickly. The system won't be able to balance that out and excrete that water. And then what you're going to have again is swelling on the brain. All of these problems lead to all of these issues lead to a problem called diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus is not based on too much glucose. It's based on water dysregulation in the body. And that would be probably after I complete the feline diseases, core vaccines, a good topic to talk about. It won't take that much time. It's a relatively rare or less common condition in animals. But again, we don't tend to see that. But every once in a while, you will see human beings that get written up for water intoxication. And again, that doesn't typically happen in, in animals that that we keep as pets. Again, we usually have hypernatremia. We have animals exposed to too much salt and not enough water. Or dehydration through not having access to water and then being reintroduced too quickly to the water. And the last topic, we looked at a dog. Going back about 10 days ago, she has to look at a dog that had multiple episodes of vomiting and wasn't interested in eating. The history was vomiting and anorexia, we could say. And I did my physical exam on the animal. And I looked, actually I was presented the rear of the animal, and it was a relatively straightforward diagnosis. This patient was a female. One of the most important things to ask on a female is the animal, has the animal had an ovariectomy? Is the animal spayed? And in this particular case, this was not a spayed animal. She was only a few years old. She had been a breeder, but she had a brown discharge coming out of her vulva. And right away, you can you just look at the patient, you look at that, and you say, okay, the animal has a pyometra. I'll explain pyometra in a minute. I finished my exam. The animal was hyperthermic. I can't remember exactly the the temperature. It was about 103 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which is abnormal. Heart rate was elevated. 
tried an abdominal palpation and the animal was a, a, a French bulldog and they're more like a sausage tube. So she did not allow me to palpate her abdomen and that's called splinting. When an animal has an abdominal problem, and if you've experienced an abdominal problem yourself, you may splint what's called splint your abdomen. That means you're tightening up your muscles because you hurt. And by tightening up the muscles, you will alleviate a little bit of the pain. You can't eliminate the pain, but you will eliminate it. And in veterinary medicine, a lot of times if our patients are experiencing tremendous abdominal pain, they will splint. And what that means is then you aren't able to do a quality palpation. And with your hands, you can use an ultrasound to look inside the abdomen. That does not cause a problem. It doesn't cause any extra pain to the patient. So splinting would, ultrasound would override the splinting of the patient. So this patient had a pyometra. This patient had a pyometra is open versus, there's two types, open versus closed. A closed pyometra is where the cervix is closed and the plus so pyometra is just pus in the uterus. It's not just, but that's the, the derivation of the name. And the cervix is either open or closed. So in this dog, the cervix was open, the pus was leaking out. It's a little bit of a better scenario than a closed pyometra. When the cervix is closed, the pus has no place to escape to. Now in this case, this patient had had at least one cesarean section to take puppies from her and at surgery, it was noted that there was a leak in the surgical site of the cesarean. And this led, and, and this led to the issue of peritonitis. So pus from the uterus leaked into the abdomen. And this causes a problem of inflammation. And now you have bacteria in the abdomen, and that leads to peritonitis. Again, peritonitis is inflammation of the lining. The peritoneum is the lining of the abdomen. And that can be a fatal problem. And in human beings, it does happen with some GI problems. If you have a burst appendix, the, the peritonitis is, is what can be the most uh, common means of uh, fatality. And the same is true in veterinary medicine. So peritonitis is definitely a life-threatening issue, but how did the peritonitis arrive? In theory, the bacteria can translocate across from the interior of the uterus to the interior of the abdomen, but that's usually unlikely. It would be more likely to spread through the blood we were, where we would have septicemia. But in this case, this was caused by a dehiscence. And when you suture tissues together, uh, I don't want to get into a, a long discussion about healing, but there's primary healing and secondary healing. Primary healing is when tissue edges are opposed correctly with not too much tension and proper blood flow. You get perfect healing and sealing up of whatever viscous, meaning cavity, that you've opened. And uh, you, you oppose that through sutures, sometimes staples. Dehiscence is when that tissue to tissue edge separates for whatever reason it could could have become infected it uh it could have torn now the uterus is a very mobile organ and it's going to retract contract after the puppies are are, are taken out of the uterus so there's going to be a lot of movement there could be incorrect suture placement 
Sutures could be too close together, they could be too far apart, and you get inversion or eversion. If the suture pulls through, if the suture is placed too close to the edge, you will get a, a, a hole, you'll get a leak. So basically, the suture line had to have come apart here and allowed the pus from the uterus to leak out into the abdomen, and then you have your peritonitis. So well, once the surgery was concluded, the animal did quite well, but from a very simple case of the present presenting, the chief complaint was vomiting and not eating. Anorexia turned out to be a pyometra with peritonitis. So when you look at your clinical signs, you have to take those into account. You have to do your physical exam. You got to get your proper history on the animal and uh, you got to put your hands on the patient. And through my experience, you know, diagnosing an open pyre was not the most difficult thing, but it is imperative that you as a veterinarian or you as a veterinary technician put your hands on the patient, look the patient over from top to bottom. I still completed a full physical on the patient, minus whatever the patient would not allow me to do. Remember, we need to be safe in what we're doing. Now, this animal was not a mean animal. She was just depressed. But again, I attempted abdominal palpation. She wouldn't allow it. And that is that is also a significant finding. So there are many significant findings in this patient. So it did turn out to have a happy conclusion, which I'm pleased about. The owner was pleased. And the dog came back to life. He got to see her real, um, her real attitude after she had fully recovered from the um, surgery and the peritonitis. So that was a nice thing to see. So I hope this potpourri has been helpful. My next podcast will be on feline viral rhinotracheitis, abbreviated, abbreviated FBR, one of the core viruses that are uh, a component of feline vaccines. I thank you. This has been Dr. Panarella for the Clinical Science Podcast, and I'll see you again soon.